As I mentioned, the book, How Not to Read the Bible, we've been talking at the beginning of this year, um, and this series is actually going to end the week before um, Lynn and Holly are, are here with us. And when we first talked on the phone, I told him about this book and the series that we were going for, and he actually bought a copy of the book and read the book, so he knew what we were talking about leading up to his time with us. And so um, he is fully briefed on where we are and what we're doing, and I believe uh, him being able to come at the end of that is really just going to, to help us make sense or wrap up what we've been talking about. Um, and the book, if you haven't read the book yet, most of what I'm sharing in our services is not in the book. Um, I'm really trying to supplement the book, and the book is meant to be a resource for you to either read uh, as we're going through the series or read at some point um, or to come back to and utilize later on. As we talked about, part one of the book is really the foundation of it, and there are four main points that we have reiterated just every week as a reminder to us that come out of that part one. One is the Bible is a library and not a book. Number two, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And so we want to make sure that we're reading it as it was written to the first people that received it to know how it's written for us. We want to make sure we don't just read a Bible verse. We don't want to take something out of context and just apply it however we want to apply it or however we think the Spirit is leading us to apply it um, because we can actually misuse the Scripture uh, the Apostle Paul and Peter warn us of this in the last days. People are going to twist the words of God. So just because someone uses a Bible verse or reference in, in something you read on uh, the Internet does not make it biblical. Okay, We need to be students of the Word to make sure that we're applying the truths of God's Word correctly to our lives. And all of us are going to be learning and growing until we see Jesus face to face. Amen. That's a good word. Uh, I'm going to encourage myself today if you don't encourage me. So you, if, either way, I'm fine. So uh, all of the Bible, number four, points to Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. The Old Testament, the New Testament, it's about Jesus. In fact, I don't even like the words Old and New Testament anymore because it makes us, uh, it's First Covenant, First Testament, Second Testament. Um, the New Testament doesn't mean that the Old is gone. Okay? It, it's like an expansion it's a renewal of the covenant of God. And so for those that in our world today are teaching that we don't need to understand the Old Testament, um, that's why we're misapplying the New Testament, in my opinion, uh, because we don't understand our Old Testament. And that probably will make sense as we go through the sermon uh, today. So part two through six of the book then builds off that foundation. So part two of the book takes some of those Old Testament laws that are a bit strange, and it uses those four principles to help us understand them. Then it we talked last week about the role of women in the church um, and in the Scripture, according to part three of the book. And now today, part four of the book is going to talk about science. Um, so how many people love science? You, lo you love science? All right. I, I love you all. Um, I hate science. Just throwing that out there. Um, there is nothing I ever liked about science. I didn't find it fun. I didn't find it exciting. Um, so of all of the things to talk about today, science is probably the thing I'm least qualified for. Um, in fact, if my biology teacher is still alive, I cheated all the way through biology off of the girl next to me. I made her accomplice in my cheating, and I still only got a C in that class. I don't know how it is, but I repent of that uh, today and apologize to her for making her complicit in my cheating. Um, that's how much I hated science. Uh, I'm, I, I cheated and I still only got a C. 
So that's just, it's that bad. So anyway, um, I don't know why I just confessed my sin to all of you, but there we go. I'm turning from my wicked ways one thing at a time. And so today we're going to talk about from beginning to end, from beginning to end. Um, And I want to reiterate at the start of this again, I don't want to discourage anyone from reading the Bible. And if that's what's happening in this series, I apologize. Call me and let's have a conversation because I'm not trying to imply that for us to get anything out of the Bible, you have to uh, have a seminary degree or you have to go to all these extra websites. Um, I'm just saying there's always more to learn about the Scripture and to make sure uh, we're applying it correctly. Because here's the thing, uh, especially as um, American Christians, we're very arrogant to think we, we know everything about the Scripture. We, we, we value God's Word. We cling to the Word of God, and we, we, it's our foundation for life. But most of us don't actually read it all. We never have. Um, we don't memorize it. We don't really dig in and study it. We don't see where it's connected from place to place the way even Jesus taught us to do. And so it, to me, I think it's just ridiculous to say that we value this book that we really never get into. I don't, I don't think that's even true. We don't value it. I think the, the way we, we get into it shows the value of it. And so I don't know that you have to go to a lot of commentaries and extra sources. If nothing else comes out of this series, uh, I hope you at least just slow down when you read it. That you look for things that maybe seem out of place as you read it. Maybe you, you dig in and you start asking questions of the Bible and you, you start looking at this book and this book and maybe how those books tie together and what maybe this footnote here in my Bible and this passage in the Old Testament that it's referencing. And even if we would just slow down and read it more and get into it more, that that would be a win, I think. Um, and ultimately, this isn't about information. Because if all I do is fill your head with information and facts, um, and we don't actually encounter the God of the book, okay, because this book, um, yes, it's living and active, but what makes it living and active is it leads me into an encounter with a living God. The words alone are not enough. Okay, sometimes in, in evangelical circles, we value this book so much, and yet this book was meant to lead us into an encounter with a living God, um, and we don't ever get into that encounter. Like, we know a lot of facts and details about him, but we don't actually encounter him. The way Jesus reprimanded the experts of the law in his day, you study this book, this book points to me, and yet you won't come to me. Uh, we don't want to be like that. And so, um, I hope I'm not making it harder for you to study, but I hope I'm challenging you to study as well. And so it's a fine line in that, and uh, I don't exactly know how to make it clearer. But as we look at Genesis chapter 1, there's so much in Genesis chapter 1, and I would be tempted um, to stay here all day, but I know that we have time constraints, and so um, we're going to try to get through it as quickly as we can. And I'll try not to get bogged down in the details. But if you read, take time to read the chapter... Uh, He will talk about some things in the chapter that we're usually not, uh, because when it comes to Genesis 1, most of us were generally taught um, Genesis 1 through, Genesis 1, days 1 through 7, is a literal telling of exactly how God created the earth. Um, That totally could be true. But if you get into the literature of the Scripture and you get into all of the things that are happening um, in this culture, this time period, other writings, there's a whole lot that could be happening in Genesis chapter 1. 
There are things that um, we call chiasms. I've brought this up before. I'll just throw a picture on the screen to give you an idea again. A lot of the biblical writers use what is called a, a chiasm. It's a literary device where they take, so A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. So A's go together, B's go together, C's go together, D's go together. So the language of A's are connected, the language of B's are connected, C's are connected, and then D. And they do this in Genesis chapter 1 to point to the main point. Okay, so it's not just by coincidence. And some people might think that maybe the Holy Spirit did it without the authors knowing about it. Um, I, think, I think God works with us as human beings. So I don't think that God just came along to these, you know, uneducated idiots who had the Bible and, you know, they just wrote down exactly what God said and poof, we get the book. Um, maybe you think that's what happened, but I think the Holy Spirit, in the same way he works with us, worked with them to put a message on paper that would lead us into an encounter with the living God. And all of it again points to Jesus. That's how I take the Bible. That's what I think it means. I think we can learn stuff from this. And so if you take all of these literary things, there's a chart that's in your book. And if you throw that chart up on the screen, uh, you'll find this in the chapter that we read this week. You can look at Genesis chapter 1 a little bit differently than just a you know, literal telling of how this happens. And I know that this is very volatile. Um, man, when you start talking about creation, um, I've had it happen to me. People flip out. Um, I've been called a heretic, a slippery slope, you know, I'm, you know, giving into liberal agenda and fun, blah, 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 all this stuff. Um, just hear me out, okay? So here's the chart. If you look at the literary structure of what's happening in Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew, days 1 through 3, I would describe as like God bringing structure to a house. It's the, the walls, the, like the, the foundation, the, uh, the beams, all of this, okay? Days four through six are God filling the house, furnishing the house, the home. Why do I think it's a house? Uh, because I, I think Genesis chapter one is a temple story. It's about God building himself a house. And I think as you study Genesis chapter one, and again, I'm not gonna be able to show you all my work it per se. I'm gonna tell you my conclusion about Genesis chapter 1, and if you want to know my work, you're going to have to sit down and have a conversation with me or read the chapters because a lot of it will come out of there, um, but we just don't have the time to go through it. And a lot of the times when we look at um, Genesis chapter 1, we don't even ask the questions that for someone who maybe has never read the Bible before would ultimately ask when they read it. Like every day is said it's good, but day two God never says it's good. Why does day two never say it's good? Did you, ever, did you ever wonder? Maybe you didn't ever catch that. How did God create light on day one, but the sun isn't created till day four? I know. I, I know God can do anything he wants. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but if it's literal, if it's a day one through seven, God telling us physics and Western logic here so that we can refute uh, evolutionists in our day, if that's what God is doing, um, we have to do some gymnastics with that to make it fit. Because then we have to say, well, God is the source of all light, which I totally agree. God is the source of all light. But if we look at it in the literary context, the figurative way that the Hebrew author might be writing it, um, that just makes a lot of sense that the sun was created on day four 
in this story because it's not the way actually God did it. We're concerned with how God does stuff. Um, Easterners are more concerned with why God does stuff. They want to know what's the purpose. Why is earth even here? Why are we even here? How God did it, who cares? That's for God to know. But we like to know what God knows. I mean, we want all the answers. That's kind of how we structure. And maybe God gives us those things, but maybe he doesn't because it doesn't matter. And so I'm not here to tell you you have to buy into my idea or his idea and you have to throw away the Creation Museum and all of the things that um, Ken Ham and everyone else has taught us. No, I'm not here to say that. But there is a side of the creationist idea that believes in a literal interpretation of Genesis that wants to shame people that want to look at it a little bit differently. And here's the thing. Both groups of people believe in the inerrancy of God's word. They believe it's infallible. They believe that God created everything. They believe that everything exists because of God and for God. Both groups. So why can't this group over here look at it and study the history and the Hebrew and the meaning and the literary devices and come to a conclusion that might be a little bit different? The chapter may challenge a lot of us. Um, I've been through a process over a long period of time that's studying this. And again, I'm not really qualified to speak to it, but I'm going to speak to something I see coming out of Genesis chapter 1 instead. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Verse 1 just says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, The earth was without shape, and it was empty. And darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. You have to understand for, like, the, the person living in this time period, darkness and watery deep is like chaos. It's like evil. It's like, so what God is doing is taking chaos and he is forming order. He's bringing order out of chaos. That's what's happening in Genesis. The Spirit of God, even in the chaos, is moving over the surface of the water. <laughs> when you think there's chaos, I promise you God's there. He is not ordering the chaos, but he's present in the chaos. Okay? He's always present. There is nowhere you can go apart from the presence of God. He is everywhere. Okay? Genesis says God is moving, bringing order to the chaos, and he starts by saying, let there be light. And there was light. And then God saw in verse 4 that the light was good, so God separated the light from the darkness. <laughs> Isn't that odd that God separated the light from the darkness? Because where there's light, there's just not darkness. So if we're just talking about, again, physical light darkness, there's just not darkness when light comes. There's, there's got to be something that we're, we're supposed to know here. And God calls the light day and the darkness night, and then there's evening and there's morning, and that's the first day. And so there's day and night, there's evening and morning, and there's no sun. There's no earth revolving around the sun. There's no day and night. There's no revolution. The, what I think we need to see in Genesis chapter 1 is God takes chaos and he creates order. God takes uh, all of this stuff that is happening and he's creating a space where we can flourish. God is actually creating time. And time and light and life do not come from the sun. They come from God himself. If you go to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and we know the Word refers to Jesus, the Son of God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. If you read Genesis chapter 1, Jesus is not present anywhere. Like, we don't get any inkling of that he's there, but we know he's there because John tells us he was there in the beginning with God, and he created all things with God in the beginning. And life and light do not come from the sun. It does not come from any. He is our ultimate source. And so we need to know, and we could talk for hours about why all this is there and why it's happening, but there's a group of people known as the Israelites that are coming out of Egypt. And they have lived in Egypt for over 400 years where Pharaoh was God. Okay, and there were all these other gods. This is what they've known. This is their culture. And they're being brought out of this culture, this system that they've been inundated with. And they've heard some stories. They don't have the written scriptures. They don't know. They, they hear stories about Abraham. They hear stories about Jacob and Joseph and leading, leaving Egypt. And so they come into the wilderness and they're about to encounter this God. And Moses is telling them about this God who's created a place for him, himself and them to flourish. And as they look at what is being taught to them in Genesis chapter 1, I believe, from what I've studied, from what I've been taught, that what they would hear is God is creating himself a temple to live in, and he's inviting them to be priests in his temple. That's what I see in Genesis chapter 1. You're like, wow, Pastor Tom, how do you see that? I'm going to show you some of it, but I don't have time to show you all of it. One of my biggest frustrations about the translation of Genesis chapter 1 is that we change chapters into Genesis chapter 2. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, talk about the Sabbath. And we create, we take the Sabbath out of it as if day 6 is the culmination of all that God created. Why do we do that? I don't know, because I wasn't in the room when they translated the scriptures and added the chapters. Here's what I know. Moses did not add the chapters. The Israelites did not add the chapters. Men, some women, but mostly men, sat in a room and decided where chapters go for us to get a handle on it. So the chapters are not infallible. And so when you turn the page to chapter 2 and you start seeing day 7, why is day 7 separated from day 6? I think day 7 is the culmination of creation. And we miss it. But we make day six the most important day. Because who was created on day six? People. And we are the shining star of God's creation. After all, God looked at humans and he said they are very good. Did he? I don't think that's what he said. Let's look at it. Verse, chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. He didn't look at humans. He looked at male and female, men and women, created in his image, and he said it was good. But then he stepped back and he looked at all that he'd created, and he said it was very good. I don't, I don't disagree that people are important, but I don't believe we are the point of Genesis chapter 1. I think God is the point of Genesis chapter 1. You and I were created by him and for him. We are his priesthood here on the earth. And when we separate this idea of Sabbath, oh, there's so much to talk about. I got, we got to keep going. When we separate Sabbath from the creation story, we, I think we miss the whole point. We miss the whole point. So let's keep reading. There was evening. There was morning. <laughs> Did you notice that we always start with evening, by the way? Yeah. We start from rest 
and then there's mourning. That's so important, but you'll, you'll maybe get it. The sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he was done. I think that verse right there tells us God has created a temple for himself to dwell in. And I think we see it all through Scripture, and I'm going to show you in just a second where we see that. But can I tell you this? When God rests, he does not rest on a bed. God rests on a throne. I'm going to say it again. God does not rest on a bed. God rests on a throne. In Psalm chapter 132, the psalmist is writing, this is one of the psalms of ascent that they would sing every time they go to Jerusalem for a feast. They would remind themselves of these words. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. <laughs> Love that. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will, no, I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place. So as a result of that, this is now what they're singing. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place. The Sabbath is not about a nap. The Sabbath is about the rule and reign of God on earth. When God rests, it's about his kingdom it, the world is done. It's complete. He's on his throne. He's ruling. He's inviting us as human beings, his representative, his priesthood, even Adam and Eve, to represent him, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to be his representatives, to do it his way, if you will. In, if you go to these, these chapters, throw those uh, scriptures up on the screen. If you go to Exodus chapter 38 through 40, when they're creating a tabernacle in the wilderness, and you start reading these chapters, there's a structure of creating a space for God to dwell, and um, that's happening in, can we throw those up on the screen? It's just the next slide, Exodus chapter 30, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Exodus chapter 38. It should be the very next slide that you're on. No, you're, on, you're too far, you're Second Chronicles. It's the one before. There you go. Exodus chapters 38 through 40, this is the tabernacle, okay, where um, Moses is making the tabernacle the place for God to dwell among the people. And if you read chapters 38 through 40, then you go to 1 Kings chapter 6 and 2 Chronicles chapter 3 through 7, you're going to see the story of God building the temple or Solomon building the temple. Keep in mind that the book of Kings would have been written in real time as it happened. The book of Chronicles was written by Ezra later, either in Babylonian captivity or after. So this is more like a commentary on what happened. So we get a fuller picture of what's happening when they build the temple. That's why it's a longer story, if you will. So and then if you go to Matthew 28, Luke 24, and Acts 1 and 2, you see God has a new temple. I don't know if you noticed this today, but we sang there's joy in the house of the Lord today. Can I tell you where the house of the Lord is? 
Yeah, the house sings, let the house of the Lord sing praise. It's not asking these bricks or these seats to give praise. We are the house of the Lord. We are the temple of God. And there is so much that is tied together between Genesis 1 and 2, between Exodus 38 where the tabernacle is. God has always been doing this from beginning to end. He is looking for a place to dwell on earth. And I'll tell you in Revelation 21 and 22, it's the same. He is going to have a place to dwell on earth just as he did at the beginning. And so, yes, we can look at Genesis chapter 1 and we can use it to refute uh, evolutionists, but I think it's greater than that. There's a story that God is telling where he's saying, this is my kingdom. I am resting on my throne. And Jesus has already won the victory. He's already brought it to us. And I I know sometimes people are like, well, Pastor Tom, I don't understand how this is going to help me. I'm so messed up in my life right now and I just just need something, I need a fix to get me through. I need something like studying the Bible and all of this and what's it mean because it brings us to a place of hope. Wholeness. There's nothing wrong with you know, a, a quick devotional in the morning that is going to just you know, kind of rejuvenate us or give us life. Just like taking a Tylenol for a headache is very helpful. But we want to get to a place where we understand this book in a way that creates a wholeness in our life. Just one verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 11, one passage. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. This is in the middle of the temple that God is building, or that Solomon is building for God. The priests, they're finished building, withdraw from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves, regardless of their divisions. And then they raised their voices in praise to the Lord. Look at what they sing. He is good, and his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because the cloud of the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Oh my goodness, I want to get up and do a happy dance right now. So they finished the work, and then when God rests in his temple that Solomon built, the priests cannot do their work. Oh, Sabbath is so much more than a day off. In fact, some of the things that we have done with Sabbath and we have to have leisure, I think leisure actually keeps us from Sabbath. In America, we've started to worship our leisure. We worship our time away. And it's not about even just carving out a day. It's about an entire lifestyle of rest. It's about entering in to the type of rule and reign that God has called us into. You're going to see this everywhere in the Scripture if you look. In Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. It's not a nap. It's not a day off. It's a kingdom rule and reign. The promise of entering his kingdom reign, his rule still stands. Let us be careful that none have been found to fall short of it. We also have had the good news proclaimed to us, which, by the way, is way bigger than Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven. The good news is the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the good news Jesus taught. The kingdom of God is breaking out right now because the kingdom of God is within you and the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is what Jesus was teaching. And when he sent out his disciples to make disciples of all nations, he's saying, you're carriers of the kingdom. You don't have to take over the world politically because the kingdom them can flourish in any empire. Oh, praise God, that's good stuff. Oh, we've had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message was of no value to them because they did not share, he's talking about the Old Testament, the people in the wilderness, they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. <laughs> 
He's not talking about when you die. If you believe, you enter the rest. Hmm. Even though God has said, I declared on oath in my anger, those unbelievers shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world, but yet we know he's never stopped working, as Jesus said. Mm. But his temple is finished, and his throne is finished, and he gets to rest now. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit and joint and marrow and it judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart. See, you and I are called to enter into the rest and it's not a nap, it's not a, a, a peace from all conflict, it's not an overthrow of the Roman Empire, it's not anything other than the fact that we live under the rule and the reign of God and Jesus Christ. And we can live our days under the rule and reign of Jesus. But we have to do it according to his way. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says to me, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And all of us think, oh, he's going to give us rest. He's going to make my life easier. He's going to just take away all my problems and take away all my pain. And he's going to, take, he's going to set me free from the Romans. That's what they thought when Jesus came. But he came as a Messiah they weren't looking for. And they knew Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because the Romans were still in charge. And if the Romans are still in charge, the Messiah hasn't come. And Jesus is like, I'm bringing a different kingdom. You guys are looking for the wrong kingdom. I hope you're getting this. I hope you're getting it. I love it. It just makes me so excited. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And this is what we're longing for. This is what our, our nation is longing for, our world. Think about it. We're working for the weekend. Oh, if I could just get one more uh, hour in, if I could just get one more promotion, if I could just get one more possession, if I could, this allure of, if I could just get one more, if I could just get one more. Oh, I just need more. I just need... Did you ever notice that when God created the heavens and the earth and he looked at creation, he called it good and he called it very good, but he never called it perfect. Now, I want to be very careful I say this. Don't stone me. I think perfect is a human construct. We have this idea that things would be perfect if, if I could just change this one thing about me, if I could just change this one thing about my spouse, if I could just change this one thing about my life, my, my job, my whatever. Think about it. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden, the throne of God. Everything is very good. But if I could just have that fruit. See, the, what God calls very good, there will always be a temptation to have more. If I just do more, if I had more control, if I had more power, if I had more this, if I had, and here's the thing. God calls us into a lifestyle where he's on the throne and it's very good. It may not be perfect. Remember our whole series on the perfect family, the perfect, and the illusion that we can have this perfect thing out there. And the problem is we're creating something in our mind. We're creating the perfect situation. And God's like, no, I'm, I'm right in the midst of it. 
You just have to, you have to understand. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be at peace. I've learned to rest, whatever my circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or whether living in plenty or in one. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And we have put that verse on every little bumper sticker we have, and I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Praise God. That's how we live our lives, and we make it that we can do anything. And it's not about doing anything. It's about learning how to live under the rule and reign of God and resting in the goodness of God even when my circumstances aren't perfect. How can I take time and rest? So God works into their, the entire lifestyle of the Israelites, this idea of Sabbath rest. He didn't tell them don't do any work, rest from your regular work. Because he wanted them every week to remember they're not the source of their own life. They don't provide for themselves. Jehovah Jireh provides for them. So if you think you can, man, if I just worked seven days, I could get way more done than I could if I just worked six days. False. Because what you're going to do, and it's not that God, God, well, God will curse you if you work on the Sabbath. No, you will die. You will work yourself to death trying to produce more because you have bought into the idea of empire. You have bought into the idea of the kingdoms of this world that if you just work one more, work one more day, you're going to produce more. Instead, you need to step back and rest. I'm not telling you to be lazy, but you need to step back and say, God, you provide for me. Oh, but Pastor Tom, you don't know. I just can't rest. And so, do you know what we do? We, we take all of the law. They were told not to just rest themselves, but rest your, your land. Rest your land. Oh, well, that's such a waste. Well, I mean, we, I know God told them to rest the land, but we are so much smarter than them because we, we've learned how to, like, enrich the soils, and we've learned all this science stuff, and so we don't need to rest the land. We can just do all this stuff. And, but it's not about resting the land. It's about giving into an idea that I can be more productive if I work harder rather than trust in God. That's what it's about. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. You'll find that in Leviticus 2. And we're like, well, is that a big deal? Because these guys are like, the ox is, when I'm, when I'm harvesting, he's eating all of my food. And if I don't have food, how am I going to feed my family? So my idea would be, I'm going to muzzle the ox and not let him eat. But God's like, no, I want you to take care of your animals because you're a caretaker. Now, I get it. God has given us animals to eat. He told Noah that. I get it, all that. But we can be humane in the killing of animals. But we have found in America, we can be more productive if we treat animals a little bit more inhumanely. I mean, after all, they're just animals. They're not the crowning of God's creation. But we are here to actually steward the earth. And I know we, we push off environmental issues and animal rights issues, and that's just liberal crap, Pastor. That's just, that doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. It has everything to do with the Bible. Because you and I are tempted to buy into a system that we can be more productive if we work things harder, if we work our employees harder, if we do, if we, we just, it's all about productivity because we got to care about that bottom line. And we've stopped trusting in God to be our provider. And we have bought into this idea that I have to have power over people rather than exercise humility and have power under. This is the last point I'm going to make, and then we're going to close. And so I, I want you to stay with me. Because there's an argument that's happening in the time of Jesus in, where he says, 
Uh, what's the greatest commandment? You keep hearing that. All throughout Jewish culture, they're trying to figure out what, what's the greatest commandment. And so Jesus comes along, Matthew chapter 22, um, and Mark chapter 12, Mark cha- and Luke chapter 10. There's three times that we see this. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that's a school of thought that's happening in Jesus' day. In Mark chapter 12, a guy comes to him and asks him the same question. Jesus responds the same way. Well, the guy then chimes in, the expert in the law, and he says, you're right, this is better than all the sacrifices and offerings. And Jesus' response to him is, you're not far from the kingdom. In Luke chapter 10, a guy comes and says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus' response to that guy is, how do you read it? And that guy tells him, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. So what he's saying is, this is what I believe. I believe the same way you do, Jesus. And Jesus is like, you're right. Do this and you'll live. And so then the guy tries to justify himself and says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan and the guy doesn't like who his neighbor is. What's Jesus saying? Because there's another school of thought that's happening that we don't know about from the scripture, but we know about from Jewish context. There's another group of people that think the second greatest commandment. They all agree the first one is love God with all your heart. They have to. They repeat the Shema every day where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. The question is, what next? The other school of thought is keep the Sabbath. And we look at that in our American context and we're like, well, that doesn't make much sense because it should be love your neighbor. I mean, that makes more sense. Keeping the Sabbath, who cares about taking a day off? It's not about a day off. It's about entering into the rule and reign of God and forcing ourselves to not do it the human nature way where we reach for the fruit that we don't have because we know more than God. I mean, why should we do it his way? I know that the best way to overcome evil is by giving someone a tongue lashing. The best way to overcome evil is to be mean and rude and unkind. Except the Bible says the best way to overcome evil is with good. Do good to those who hate you. Why? Because it's the kingdom of God operates in power under, not power over. And I know you're going to say, well, Pastor Tom, so we should never exercise power over people? We should never as, child, as parents or in a classroom or in the government? And you know what? I don't know. I don't know. But could we at least look for the power underway first? I mean, as a culture, could we just say maybe that what God wants from, from us in Huron, South Dakota is that we stop trying to control people and we stop trying to manipulate and we stop trying to exercise power over people and put people in their place and we actually do what Jesus did and we humble ourselves and we serve. I mean, if you take the words of Jesus when he is before Pilate and he says, Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to put you to death? And Jesus says, you would have no power over me were it not given to you from above. Power under. Every time. I could call legions of angels right now to rescue me. But rather, I'm going to entrust myself to the Father because the Father says, this is how we live. And see, it's not about keeping the Sabbath and, you know, being a good Christian and being a, a good follower of Christ and making sure we don't break the commandments and the laws. It's about the fact that you, we're killing ourselves. We're killing ourselves because we're trying to be, we're trying to get more. We're trying to get more. We haven't learned to live under the rule and the reign of God. 
And it's not about taking a day off and having leisure. Because you can do that. The Pharisees were doing it. They were taking a day off. But there were so many rules around the day off that they weren't resting under the reign of God. That's why Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Isn't it better to do good on the Sabbath than to do harm? I mean, they're telling Jesus he can't heal people on the Sabbath. But my Father is always at work. Wait a minute. I thought he rested on the Sabbath. (laughs) He did. He rested from his work of creating the throne room. He did not rest from his holding the world altogether because he always does that. And so you and I are called to enter into not just a day a week to live like this, not just an hour on Sunday to live like this, but to enter into a lifestyle where we, we literally embrace the kingdom of God. Here's, here's four points. Don't worry, I'm just going to read them. If you want to take a picture of it, take a picture of it. Because how do we flesh this out? This is how I want us to flesh it out. I know that some people say, well, Pastor Tom, I just don't have time to study. I don't have time to dig deeper in the word. I don't have time for that. Can I tell you, leisure is killing us. Even scientists that don't love Jesus are telling us screen time is killing us. And whether your screen time is this device or your screen time is a television set or your screen time is a book you read, leisure is killing us because we don't come back from our leisure rested. (laughs) It just is. And we have got to come to a place where we recognize we're doing it the wrong way. We have, in the words of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, we have forsaken the fountain of living water and we have built for ourselves cisterns that hold no water. Not the world, the church. We're trying to find, we're just, we're, if we could just get the White House, if we could just get the Congress, if we could just get control, if we could just have power over. You don't, we don't need power over because the people of God can flourish under any empire. In Exodus, the people of God were in slavery in Egypt and it tells us that the harder that the Egyptians worked them, the more they multiplied. <laughs> I don't need my situation to change in order to flourish because I don't have to try to win because I'm already victorious. And I have to every day fight against the desire to win, to be right, to get my point of view out there. Oh, I'm not just preaching to you today. This is, this thing hits me. I don't know what you think about The Chosen. It's a a show on TV. But the season, the season three that just came out, the last episode, number six, I have watched it over and over again. It's so powerful because there's this, I won't ruin it if you haven't seen it, but the idea that Jesus is a Messiah, that it's just so clear. They're looking for a Messiah that's going to set them free from Rome. And he's like, I'm right here. And it's not about Rome. It's not about Rome. It's not about antichrist. It's not about coming kingdoms. It's not about any of that. You can flourish. You just have to, you have to come to me and you're going to find rest. And we fight against this. We fight against it in our marriages. I'm going to give that spouse of mine a piece of my mind. I'm going to... There's no rest. If I could just work harder, if I could just get a promotion, I've been overlooked for a promotion, so I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm not telling you to never stand up for yourself. But if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. So here's what we do. We start by just surrendering and yielding. 
learning to humble ourselves and take up our cross. We, we let it transform our minds, the kingdom of God. It's all about the transformed mind. I have got to learn to see the world different. It's not power over, it's power under. How can I overcome evil with good? How can I have the soft answer that turns away wrath? I've got to learn the secret of contentment. I've got to learn how to live the Sabbath lifestyle, not just a day a week, although that's a great place to start. I've got to learn how to rest in the goodness of God, even in the midst of imperfect life. And I've got to learn to grow in community. I've got to, because this is where I prefer others over myself. And we have a church culture in America where it's all about show up on Sunday and go do our own thing the rest of the week. That's just, it's, the community of the body of Christ has got to be so much more than that. And so many people in the church are, we're moving from church to church because we got our feelings hurt. No one cared for me. Well, that person didn't care for me. Stop worrying about who's caring for you and you just start caring for someone else and say, God, help someone to meet my needs as I meet theirs. Because here's the thing I've learned. 25 years in ministry, I don't know everything, but here's what I've learned. People who don't feel like their needs are getting met, you can't do enough to meet their needs. You just can't. It's the bottom line. Now, there may be have some things that that church or me or other people have done wrong to them. Absolutely. But when you're in the mindset that other people aren't meeting my needs, nothing anyone does at that point can help you. What you need is a transformed mind. And it's not just our church. It's, it's churches. Like people are hopping from church to church because we get our feelings hurt. This church isn't meeting my needs anymore as if somehow it was about meeting my needs in the beginning. And in the beginning, it was about him. And if we just learn to rest in him, I promise you when we learn this mindset, we will find rest. It may not come like a lightning bolt overnight. Whew, I'm at peace. It may not be a Tylenol for your headache, but it will be wholeness for your soul. That's where we're going as a body this year. This is where we're going as a body totally. I don't know how to put it all into words properly, but that's where we're going. Right there. And I invite you to come on that journey. So Father, thank you today for your word. And thank you for the patience and mercy that you've given to people today to be able to just listen to some of my rambling. But God, I pray that the, the truth of what is contained in Genesis chapter one and two would resonate in their hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would take every confusing thought and you'd make it clear. That you'd help us to see from beginning to end the story you're telling, what you're doing. Help us to fully surrender every area of our lives, full surrender. In fact, if you'd humor me and you put your hands out in front of you today, just as an act of saying, yeah, I'm in, this is what I want. Holy Spirit, today we receive the grace to surrender, the grace to humble ourselves more than we have, to humble ourselves, to take up our cross, to allow your word to renew our minds, to allow the ways of your kingdom. God, to fight against the temptation for more, for power over. God, to embrace the kingdom of humility, service, and honor, power under. 
God, show us. We don't, we don't know how to do this. It's not being modeled for us. We need to know. We want to learn. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to learn the secret of contentment, how to rest in your goodness, even in the midst of the imperfect of our lives. Show us how to live this out in community so that we can be your priesthood in Huron, South Dakota, putting you on display for everyone to see. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you again for your patience. And I honestly mean it. If you have like questions or you want to push back, I'm, I love it when people push back. Um, but don't be mean and push. I want to wrestle. If you, want to, if you say, hey, I want to understand this, but let's not do it after church today. Let's do it sometime this week, okay? So I don't want to wrestle with it right now, but I want to wrestle with it anytime. Pick up the phone. Hey, let's have coffee. Let's talk about this. What do you mean by this? How does this fit? Um, do that. I'm available to you anytime you need that, okay? I want us to grow in our understanding of what God means when he says, rest, okay? So stop by the table if you would before you leave. Connect cards are there. Calendars are there. Lots of information. I would love to talk to you before you leave. And uh, don't be afraid to ask a question, even though I said I didn't want to talk about it right now. Okay. God bless you as you go.